turn with me this morning once again to the book of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Mark 7, 1 through 13. This is a great passage to address on holiday times, Thanksgiving, Christmas, all those times like that, because we all have a lot of traditions. And this particular passage, Jesus is going to teach on tradition. Kind of an interesting note, in the last couple of sermons, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, and all of the gospel writers had one, uh, and almost all of them had the other. For whatever reason, only Matthew and Mark give us this section, beginning at chapter 7 into chapter 8. But it's still important. It is the teaching of Christ. I want to address for you just a moment a question that was asked way back in 2009. It was the Great American Think-Off Philosophy Competition, an essay contest. It asked the question, is it ever wrong to do the right thing? Well, I don't know what the answers were to that particular philosophy competition, but I thought if we were to ask that question, Jesus, in a sense, in this passage, shocks us all by questioning the foundation for understanding what is the right thing. This is something that our society needs to be shocked into asking again and again. Hear these words about tradition and commandments in chapter 7. We'll look at verses 1 through 13 this week and the rest of this next week. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly according to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you, handed, you have handed down, and many such things you do. As we consider this teaching of the Lord, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, give us wisdom from your word today. Help us to know what you are commanding us, what you are re revealing to us through your word. I pray, Father, that our thoughts and our attitudes, our hearts might be in tune to your word and not to our own ideas. I pray, Father, that anything said, done, thought that is not consistent with your word would fall away, not to be heard from again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Perhaps particularly for those of you who are older, you may remember the picture of Isaac Stern on a rooftop with his fiddle. An Israeli actor named Topol, with his deep, rich voice, pictured as the character Tevi in the 1971 musical Fiddler on the Roof. The title song and the most memorable music of that Oscar-winning musical repeats the word tradition over and over again. But if you know the story, you know that this is a story of a people that was largely losing their traditions. It's a story that, that hurts our emotions when we see an entire people see the demise of their treasured traditions in the family of this man and in the whole play that takes place before the audience. Now I have to say, we all have traditions. What a better, what a better, better time to talk about it uh, than during Thanksgiving weekend. We all have traditions. Perhaps you remember the type of food that your family had or the things that you did on Thanksgiving weekend. Perhaps you remember the traditions in your community. I know in this church's history, there was a family that for many years cooked a big meal here in the kitchen on Thanksgiving weekend. But when do traditions of the family, the church, or even culture, when do they become wrong or even sinful? You see, God's grace in Christ must come before traditions. Jesus tells us several things about tradition here. First of all, we're reminded that, of course, good intentions come with traditions, don't they? We don't start traditions because we think they're bad. We start traditions because we think they're good things. But secondly, there might be times when hypocrisy accompanies traditions. And finally, if traditions become the most important, they become sinful. First of all, the good intentions with traditions. Here's the circumstance. Jesus is here talking with those who had a good intention. They wanted people to have clean hands when they ate their food. This is something that our parents often teach us, wash your hands before you eat, right? Is this really a bad thing to wash your hands before you eat? Is Jesus saying that none of us should wash our hands before we eat? That's kind of silly. No, this is evidently the Pharisees and the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, it says in verse 1, they saw that some of his disciples ate without washing their hands. This was a big tradition for them. Here is the descriptive phrase in verses 3 and 4. This is the parenthetical thing that's described here. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly according to the, holding to the tradition of the elders. In fact, if you know the tradition that was here, there was a particular way they had to wash their hands with so much water, up so much, even sometimes up to your elbow, in order to wash everything properly in those days. And this be, had become a tradition. This wasn't necessarily a command from Scripture, but it was a tradition that was held for this purpose. When they come from the marketplace, in other words, when they come from a place where there is more exposure to other things and other people, they do not even eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the baptism, that's the word here, of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So here is their practice. Their practice is to wash their hands before they eat. It sounds like a wonderful tradition to me. 
In fact, we would say the good intention here in this practice is, first of all, good hygiene, right? We all know that our parents taught us, our mother in particular would say, wash your hands before you eat. In other words, we don't want you to eat with a bunch of germs. That sounds like good things. So it might be for hygiene. Or perhaps it would be out of piety. This is the other opportunity here to, to demonstrate that even when they eat, they're focusing on their cleanliness and their purity before God. So their practice would do these two things, practice good hygiene and also practice piety before God. But these good intentions also are not only about hygiene and piety, there's a basis to them. If you understand the concept of the Jewish Mishnah and all the other things around the law, the idea here, this basis, was to fence around the law. Now this is a good thing in a sense. Good intentions here all around. They thought God's law was so very important that in order to follow God's law, then what we could do is we could build a fence around that law and add other rules and statutes so that if we even were to, by God's grace, even if we were to keep those things, then of course we would keep the things that God had commanded us. In other words, if we break these traditions, we're sinning less perhaps than we would sin against the law. So this fence around the law was for three purposes. First of all, to honor God. They wanted to honor God by keeping not only God's law, but having traditions that honored him around that law so we wouldn't break the, the central law. It was also to protect his word. They wanted to protect his word so that we would not blaspheme against it, we would not live lives opposed to it, all those other types of things. And in this sense, the third thing there, that it would assist the people in keeping God's word. Now, if you know anything about how this works, you know that, for example, for keeping the Sabbath that we looked at earlier, there was all kinds of laws. In fact, one of, just one of the laws was this. You were not allowed to carry a handkerchief on, on the Sabbath day because that would be work. But in order to carry that handkerchief from one place to another, you could tie it on your body and then go somewhere with that handkerchief and untie it and use it. This was in order to protect around that law. You didn't want to work and break God's law, so by doing these simple practices, and there were lots of them, then you could keep the law. Well, this was one of them, to wash their hands. But the problem is this. It added to God's law. In fact, Exodus 30, verses 17 through 21, you might find printed in your outline, in your bulletin, as I drop it on the floor. And here's what it says there. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Was washing hands, even feet, something that God approved of? Absolutely. 
but was it required for all the people to follow this command in regard to eating a meal? No. This was for the priestly family in order for them to practice the cultic traditions that God had handed down for them to promote the worship of God and offering sacrifices. And yet they took this and they said, here is a way in which all of us can be clean before God and pure. And they added this not just as a tradition, but it became weighted as a law. Now how do we do this? We can do this in many ways. Let me give you just one example. On Wednesday, February 12, 2014, Herbert and Catherine Scheibel were sent to jail for causing the death of their eight-month-old son who died of pneumonia. The crime? Refusing to consult medical intervention for a common illness, pneumonia, due to their faith-healing traditions and beliefs. In other words, their baby had pneumonia. All they had to do, assumedly, by according to the statutes of our laws, was take this baby to the doctor to get antibiotics and perhaps um, uh, 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 going to the hospital, if necessary, for this child to recover from pneumonia. But because they believe that God is a healing God, and in their practice and traditions, they were taught that we were not to use medical intervention, but trust God alone to heal individuals. They did not take their child to the doctor, and the baby died. It was the second child they lost in similar circumstances, both to the common illness of pneumonia within five years. Philadelphia Judge Benjamin Lerner told the couple, in court, you've killed two of your children, not God, not your church, not religious devotion, you. And they were sentenced to jail. Sometimes tradition, even if it comes from good teaching, is God the great healer? Yes. Could he have healed these babies? A two-year-old and now an eight-month-old, could he have healed these two individual children? Yes, he could have. But at the same time, these traditions don't forbid us from seeking the advice of doctors. Even Jesus said, sick people go to doctors. So how is it that we would have a tradition that passed on indiscriminately, forced onto others, what might, would even cause someone to die. Now, did these parents have good intentions? Absolutely. Did these scribes and Pharisees have good intentions? Absolutely. But the problem with them, in this case, in Mark 7, was hypocrisy. Here's what Jesus said. Verse 6, he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? You see, the focus here, according to verses 1 and 2, it's not on themselves. Their focus is on others. It's not on their own heart. They saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. In other words, they had this tradition and this practice which was good, which was fine for them to follow. But when they sought to force it onto the others and claim that it is sinful to do anything else, then it wasn't about their heart anymore. It was about seeing the problem of others. And of course, here, of course, is another Jerusalem theological condition, uh, commission here. 
these individuals were not here by accident. They were from Jerusalem. This was another, uh, just earlier in Mark, this happened again when they were talking about eating the grain or keeping the Sabbath or doing other things. This is always, they can never find anything wrong with Jesus. They can only find something wrong with his disciples. And because the disciples are following Jesus, they fault Jesus for the action of the disciples here. Again, where is the focus? It's on others. It's not on their own heart. And so what did Jesus accuse them of? Hypocrisy. You know, this is a tough word, isn't it? Hypocrisy. Try calling somebody a hypocrite and see how they react. But don't do that unless it's really true. You know, these are fighting words. Jesus didn't lay over and play dead when these people interacted with him. He would sometimes state the truth. And for them, this hypocrisy, what does hypocrisy mean? It literally means play acting. In other words, you act like one thing, but it's all false. Really, what you really are doing or meaning is something entirely different. So here he claims for them, this is false religion. What does it focus on? It focuses on human actions rather than God himself. Now, is it true that sometimes we can see that our human actions show that we're not following God? Yes, absolutely. It's called the fruit of either faith or unbelief. If you're doing things to honor God and doing those actions, these are fruits of faith, fruits of repentance, fruits of these things. If you're doing things that dishonor God, this is the fruit of your heart, which is an unbelieving heart. But the focus here in false religion is always on what we're doing rather than on God. In other words, are we going through all the motions of religious devotion? And here you kind of see what it was like. Here, back to verse 4, when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe. In other words, here are the other things that they do. They wash cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Just kind of a side note, if you, don't think, if you think that baptism only means immersion, I don't think it means they immerse dining couches in the water. That's just kind of a side note for baptism here. But, but here is the, the other point. The point that he's making is this. For every aspect of life, these guys were religiously devoted to doing things that showed their piety before God. But when it came to their heart, here's what Jesus quoted. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, these mere, mere traditions were made more important than God's law. Now, were some of these good traditions? Yes. Some of them were great traditions. In fact, some of them were traditions based upon God's law. Did he want them to be careful in how they worshipped him? Yes. Did they want cleanliness in circumstances because God's law told them to, yes. But instead of letting God's law speak for itself and doing this because their face was pointed towards Christ and pointed to God, it was instead looking at their own actions and thinking they were more righteous than others. It was all play acting. 
You know, we've been looking over since the recent events in Israel and the Gaza Strip. We've been reminded of these radical terrorists, haven't we? And it's well documented throughout the decades now that radical Islamic terrorists will condemn their, the West for things like smoking and drinking and drugs and sexual immorality. And I have to say, they're right. They should condemn the West for sexual immorality and drugs and drunkenness and things that the scripture commands. But the problem is this, while these terrorists, especially those who are contemplating suicide attacks, are making these particular things, what do they do as they anticipate dying in their attack? They do these very things. They imbibe in these things as they prepare to die. What is this? Scripture calls it hypocrisy. But lest we think these terrorists from the Islamic faith are worse than we are, think about you. Think about the times when, perhaps in a week, you've done your daily devotions, you've come to worship, you've prayed, you've perhaps done other works of service, and then you go home and you treat your spouse like dirt. Or you do all these things, and you do some abominable sin at your house. What are you doing? Are those things that you do good? Absolutely, they're good. You know, those things like going to church and praying and reading the Bible and all those things are very good. But those things in and of themselves, even if they are traditions and how we do it, maybe you have a practice where you do it at a certain time every morning in the day. That's great. But does that mean everybody else has to do it that time every day or they're bad people? Does that mean everybody has to come to Faith Presbyterian Church because it's the best church on the block? No, absolutely not. Our focus should not be on the outward practice of others or even ourselves, but on the condition of our heart. Why do we do these things? Hopefully because they're the commands of God and they're scriptural. And even if there are things around the scripture, those can be good things too. If I know that I have a problem with alcohol and I'm prone to get drunk if I drink it, then it might be for me that I never drink again. And that's an okay boundary. But it's not okay for me to enforce that on everybody else and add to God's law. It's on the outward practice rather than the conditions of the heart. And so even traditions, good traditions, can become sinful Here's how they become sinful, beginning at verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. In other words, sinful traditions are sinful because they do this. They either compromise God's standards or they're rejecting God's standards. And they, this happens for two reasons. Either we want to establish tradition. Notice what he says here. You reject the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. In other words, they think, you know, we know better than God. We know the boundaries better than God. God says this boundary, but I think it should be this boundary. Or God says this boundary, and I think it should be this boundary. And you might have a good intention because you don't want to break God's law, but by establishing your tradition and imposing it upon everybody else, 
you're rejecting God's standard. It's either to establish tradition or it's in order to maintain the tradition. We all have traditions, don't we? Maybe in your house it's a tradition that you have to have the cranberries in your Thanksgiving dinner. We didn't this year. We didn't have cranberries. Maybe it's that you've got to have turkey in your Thanksgiving dinner. But maybe somebody else likes ham instead. Is it okay? We laugh about those things. Sometimes we say, you know, we've always done things this way. And what we mean by that is not, isn't it wonderful how we've done them? Won't you consider this, please? Usually when we say we've always done things this way, it's, a, it's this way or the highway. If you do it another way, I will disown you or I will be opposed to you. We do this in the church. We do this in our homes. We do this with our children and our grandchildren. Sometimes those traditions become so much more important because they want to be established or maintained by individuals. Well, here's the concrete example that Jesus gives. Here's an example of their tradition that has overcome or rejected the commandment of God. He reminds them of the fifth commandment. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. You find this in Exodus 20, 12. You find this also in Deuteronomy 5. This is the law. Honor your parents. And then he also quotes from Exodus 21, just a chapter later. Now he refers to verse 17, but verse 15 also applies here in chapter 21. In chapter 21, verse 15, it says, if a man strikes his father or his mother, he shall die. And then it says, if a man curses his father or mother, in verse 17, that's what it says here, if whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. It reminds them of the importance of honoring your parents. But he says, you do this instead. You say, if a man tells a fa his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Now you might think, what in the world is going on here? What does Corbin mean? Here's the Corbin principle. The Corbin principle is this. Here's God's law. Honor your parents. We see that both according to the positive commandment of the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. We see this also in the negative command that if you dishonor your father and your mother by cursing them or striking them, you're liable to capital punishment. Very serious stuff. And he says instead, here's what they do. Here's the Corbin thing. It's basically saying this tradition, vows are more important than the fifth commandment. Now, are vows important? Well, yeah, look, look, at your, look at the scriptures here, some of them. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Vows are so important. We saw it just a couple chapters ago when the king, or, or the guy who called himself king, Herod Antipas, vowed to give anything that his stepdaughter wanted, and she asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter, and he gave it to her. We saw that in Jephthah, the judge, he said, 
Because of the victory the Lord has given me, whatever comes out of my house to greet me, I will sacrifice to God. His daughter came out. He sacrificed his daughter. We read those things, we think, well, yeah, they were saying what they did was important and they fulfilled their vow. But isn't it also true that a valid vow would not be opposed to the word of God. Should Jephthah have sacrificed his daughter? Absolutely not. Should Herod Antipas have executed John the Baptist when it was an innocent man that was being executed unjustly? Absolutely not. Two wrongs don't make a right. And he says here, in this case, it's the same thing. You make this vow, this is a property vow. They say, Corbin. In other words, they call out that word that indicates that this particular property is a gift to God. It might be their heritage. It might be something that is of great value to them, passed down through their family. And they say, we're giving this to God. And in this particular case, what would happen is it would be something that is kind of like a heritage. The person would still have access to those resources, but he was dedicating it to the Lord and to the Lord's work and ministry. And in their tradition, they said, if you do that, the parents can't get it anymore. It's only for you and God. It's for God working through you and your ministry. And what about your parents? What if they need care? What if they need medical help? What if they, they need housing? What are you doing? He says here, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. In other words, they, they say in a good way, I'm dedicating all this property to God. But the tradition of the elders says if you do this, no one else in your family has access to it. You can't use it for anybody else close to you. And it removes from them the responsibility of caring for their parents and showing them honor. Terrible stuff. This really happened. And Jesus is calling that out. He says you can't take one part of the law and, and basically twist it around to your own uses so that you can invalidate another part of God's law. We do this sometimes too, don't we? We want to justify our actions and we want to say, you know, Look over here, I'm doing all this for God while all along we're neglecting our spouse and we're not doing anything for our family. This is a great danger for pastors. You know, for those who work for the church, for officers in the church, elders and deacons, for women's ministry leaders and those who do all kinds of things in the church, sometimes we want to say, look, I've got to do all these things. And it's tempting. I know it. I've done it. And yet, what are we called to do? Care for our family. In the New Testament, Paul tells Timothy, it's so important that you care for your family, that if you don't care for your immediate family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Wow. If I say Corbin to my time, if I say Corbin to my resources, if I say Corbin to whatever, and I dedicate it to God, which is a good thing to do, and yet I neglect to care for my own family, Scripture says I'm worse than an unbeliever. Jesus calls out the Pharisees and the scribes and says, these traditions of men must not become your gods or your idols. 
This was a tough Thanksgiving for us at our house. One was gone. First time in our family's existence that we didn't have one of our children home for the holiday. Some of you know what that's like. In fact, some of you perhaps have grown children, even grandchildren, and this year it wasn't your turn to have them at your house for Thanksgiving, or perhaps you didn't go up with them. And there's some sadness that goes with that. But we also understand in this circumstance that God has called this individual somewhere else these traditions, if we impose them on somebody, and if we were to say, hey, you know, but by the way, son, since you didn't come home for Thanksgiving, I think you're a terrible son. I think it's awful that you didn't spend whatever money you could to come and fly and get here for at least a day and have turkey with us, if not Thanksgiving Day, at least Friday or Saturday, and then fly back. But you know, this is what we do, not necessarily, that's a silly example. But we do this so often when we try to impose our own ideas on other people. This church has been around for over 50 years. Faith Presbyterian Church, we celebrated that a few years ago. Our denomination, the PCA, will be celebrating its 50th anniversary in December. 50 years is a long time. We too sometimes are prone to say we've always done it that way. I've heard it a few times here. I've heard it at all the churches I've been to. And sometimes if I have a new idea, I'm willing to be shot down for the sake of we've always done it that way. In fact, sometimes I don't want to die on the hill of facing we've always done it that way. But what is the right way? What is the question we're asking? How does God want us to do it? Is it okay that we try a different way in certain circumstances? Now, of course, there are some things that are, that are non-negotiable. Are we going to worship on Sundays? Absolutely. It's a command of God. God tells us to worship on Sundays. But does he tell us we have to do it with a piano? Does he tell us we have to do it in a pew? Does he tell us that we have to wear certain clothes when we come to do it? Do we have to wear a tie? Do we have, you know, you, you get the idea here. But we can look down on others. I remember an elder in my first church. There was a guy that came into the church first time. He darkened the doors of our church to, to, to my knowledge. And he hadn't even come into the sanctuary yet. He came in the building and he had a baseball cap on. And the first thing that elder said to him is, take that hat off. You should not have a hat on in the church building. Is that guy ever going to come back? Now, is it our practice not to wear hats when we worship God? Yeah, it's our practice not to wear hats, men, when we worship God. But what about the rest of the church building? Is it true that nobody should be wearing a hat? Is it always true that we should tell the kids, and especially if they're somebody else's kids, don't run in the church? Well, there was a lame man that walked and leaped and ran and praised God in the midst of the people when he was healed. Peter and John didn't say, don't jump in the church building. You see, what does God want you to do? What is his word? How do the incidentals, not God's law, 
But the incidentals around God's law, the, th the ways we do things, the, the way we practice our pleasing God, the way we glorify him in all things, how do these enhance God's word rather than become the standard in equality with God's word? We have to be so careful. Scripture warns us not to add or subtract to God's word. We don't ever subtract to it when God tells us to do something. That is what we should do. When God tells us in his word,